Pastor. My name is Michael Hinnon, and I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And today, we are going to go back in time to 597 BC. So we're talking over 2,500 years ago. Uh, In 597 BC, the world powers around the Middle East had changed. So for about 150 years, Assyria was the major power in the Middle East. And in fact, they came in in 722 and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. But by 597 BC, a new world power had come onto the scene. Babylon had come onto the scene. And God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, they had messed up. They had rebelled against God, and they had rebelled against this new world power. And as a result, Babylon came in and took 10,000 of Jerusalem's brightest and best and sent them east to Babylonia, almost 1,000 miles away. And one of those exiles, those deportees, was the prophet Ezekiel. At that time, he was only 25 years old. And so I want you to imagine with me being a 25-year-old who's taken up out of his family, away from his home, and everything he had been working towards, he was going to be a priest, was gone. You see, there was no temple in Babylon for, for Ezekiel to be a priest at. And so just like that, everything that Ezekiel had in his life was gone in just a moment. So for five years, I can imagine Ezekiel had questions like, why God did you allow this to happen? Why God have you taken away everything I'm working towards? Why God? As some of you maybe have asked him before. But five years later, In 592 BC, when Ezekiel was 30 years old, God gave him a new commission. No longer was Ezekiel going to be a priest for God. Instead, now he was going to be a prophet. In fact, two different times in the book of Ezekiel, we are told that Ezekiel is called by God to be a watchman. The first time this happens is Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, where God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. Ezekiel's job was to be a prophet, a watchman. He was supposed to, to notice when impending danger and judgment was coming and then to tell Jerusalem about it. The problem was they didn't listen. And if we fast forward five more years in 587 BC, Babylon would come in and completely wipe out Jerusalem and destroy their temple. But before that happened, Ezekiel was uh, supposed to prophesy and tell people about the impending judgment that would happen if they didn't turn their hearts back to God. And because Ezekiel was a prophet, God called him to do some weird things. God often called his prophets to embody the message that they were going to preach because God knows that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so God wanted to sear these images into his people's heads. And so if you read in your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter four, God calls Ezekiel to first start playing with some Play-Doh. And, and he's supposed to play with this Play-Doh and he's supposed to, it was probably clay, but I envision him with some different colored Play-Dohs. And he's supposed to make the model of Jerusalem. And after he gets done making this model of Jerusalem, he's supposed to put a frying pan in front of it to represent how God's people are going to come under siege, that Babylon is going to come in and wipe 
Jerusalem out. Later in Ezekiel chapter 4, God calls Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 390 days. So that's, you know, over a year. He's supposed to lay on his left side for 390 days to represent the 390 years that the northern kingdom of Israel had rebelled against God. And after those 390 days, he was to turn on his right side for 40 days to represent the 40 years that the southern kingdom of Israel had disobeyed God. And while he's on his side, he was supposed to cook food on cow poop. Originally, it was going to be human poop, but Ezekiel says, I can't do that. That's too abominable for me. And so God says, okay, you can cook food on cow poop to represent that when Babylon comes in, they are going to wipe us out and we're not going to have any food to eat. And then if you fast forward to Ezekiel chapter 5, God tells him to shave his hair and to shave his beard, and with a third of it, he was to burn it. With a third of the hair, he was supposed to hit it with his sword. I just kind of envision Ezekiel like a little t-ball kid just trying to hit it with a sword. Uh, And then a third of it, he was supposed to throw into the air, and the wind would blow it away to represent how, how Babylon was going to come in and raise the city, and then they were going to be Babylon's servant. And so God calls Ezekiel to start preaching these moments of judgment and to prophetically embody them. And ultimately, the reason is he wants God's people to know that because they have removed God's presence from their life, God is going to remove his presence from their temple. Because they have removed God's presence from their lives, God is going to remove his presence from their temple And it's hard to emphasize how important the temple was to Jerusalem. For 350 years, the temple that was built by Solomon to be the house of God. They knew that that the temple couldn't contain the glory of God, and yet this was the place where people would come to worship God. This was a place where they could come to access God's presence. This was a place where they would sacrifice to him. This was a place where they could come and experience God's presence. And yet, because of their sin and rebellion and injustice and idolatry, God was no longer going to be there. God was going to leave the building. In fact, we hear about this in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. God gives this vision to Ezekiel, and here's what it says. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. Because of their sins, the Lord had left the building. The Lord had left the temple, and so we are left wondering, where is God's presence? Our passage is going to answer that today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 14 through 25, or page 682 in the Pew Bibles that are in front of you. It's going to be helpful uh, as we go through Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet that we don't talk about very often. It's, uh, we hear a lot of crazy stories like some of the things that Ezekiel did, but the whole point of Ezekiel is to get God's people to turn their hearts back to him. And so today we are continuing on in our series called A Journey to Renewal, and we are going to focus on transformation and how God transforms our hearts. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to begin in verses 14 and 15. Look with them with me. Verse 14 says, the word of the Lord came to me. 
Son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. And so in this moment, we are listening in to a conversation of the people who are still in Jerusalem. So these are not the people who have been sent away or deported to Babylon. These are the people who are still in Jerusalem, and they feel special. They feel like God's presence is still with them and not with the exiles. And so they have this plan in place. They are going to steal the land that the other exiles had. I mean, the exiles aren't there anymore. They're about a thousand miles away in Babylonia. And so they're just going to steal the land of the exiles. They feel like God's presence is with them. But we find out in the very next verse that it's not. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, Therefore say this, this is what the sovereign Lord says, although I sent them far away among the nations, we're talking about the exiles, and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. So God's presence is not in Jerusalem with these people. God's presence is with the exiles, the ones who are a thousand miles away from home. And in fact, God calls himself their sanctuary. We sang a song about uh, being God's sanctuary earlier. When, when we hear the word sanctuary, I think a lot of church people think about this space. We call this space our sanctuary. But a sanctuary in the Bible is a place that is safe and sacred. And so I want you to think about how ironic it is that God is saying to the exiles, I am your sanctuary. Because these people have been taken from their homes, they have been taken away from their families, they have been taken away from their jobs, they are literally slaves for Babylon, they are prisoners of war, and yet God says, I am your sanctuary. If you and I were prisoners of war, we probably wouldn't say that that place is a safe and sacred place. And yet God says to these exiles, I am your sanctuary. Because God wants these exiles to know that no matter where they are, whether they are in Babylon or in Jerusalem or in America, God wants them to know that he makes his home in hearts that welcome him. No matter where they are, no matter where we are, God makes his home in hearts that welcome him. The problem for the Israelites is that When you read the Old Testament, over and over and over again, they sinned. They rebelled. They chose to walk in sin and injustice and idolatry rather than choosing mercy and righteousness. And so God, for the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel, speaks a word of judgment upon them. But there's one word of hope and those 33 chapters. And that's the passage we get to look at today, starting in verse 17 through 20. And what we find out is that God takes the initiative to transform our hearts. God takes the initiative to transform our hearts. Look at verse 17 and following with me. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. 
I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. God has taken the initiative to transform their hearts. I want you to see the emphasis upon God there. God says he is the one who is going to bring the exiles back home. God is the one who says he is going to change their heart out, give them an undivided heart. God is the one who says that he is going to give them a new spirit. God is the one who has taken the initiative to transform their hearts. God is the sovereign king of all, and he is going to accomplish what he wants to. Ezekiel later talks about this transformation again in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. They'll be on the screen where God says again to his people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God is the one taking the initiative here to transform our hearts. And I want you to notice how drastic the solution is. The sin problem is so bad for the Israelites and the sin problem is so bad for us that the only solution is heart surgery. The only solution is to get a heart transplant. In fact, in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to the religious leader, Nicodemus, I like to talk about this conversation, uh, Nick at night, because he's talking to him at night. I know it's a dumb joke, but I like saying it. Uh, and, And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, this religious leader, and he says to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In other words, no one can be a part of the family of God unless they are given a new heart. God takes the initiative to transform our hearts. Last summer, Dr. J.K. Jones was here, and he preached a good sermon on Psalm 51, and he told us about the first successful human heart transplant. On December 3rd, 1967, a doctor from Cape Town, South Africa, Dr. Christian Barnard, He performed the first successful surgery. He took a heart from a 25-year-old woman, Denise Darval, who had died in a car accident. She was brain dead, but her heart was still beating. And so they took her heart and put it in a man whose name I'm going to butcher, but I believe it's pronounced Louis Washkansky. They put that heart in Louis Louis Washkansky. Here's a picture of uh, Dr. Christian Barnard and his team. It took him about three and a half to four hours. Louis uh, was a avid sportsman, but he was also an avid smoker. And so he had uh, lung disease and his heart was dying. And so they put this heart in him. And after three and a half to four hours, his new heart started beating. And so one of the most miraculous things had happened in all of human history, a human heart transplant that was successful. But after only 18 days, 18 days was when his heart stopped beating. You and I, we need a a new heart for longer than 18 days. You and I, we need a new heart forever. And God has taken the initiative to give us that new heart. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has become like us in every way, yet without sin. He died on the cross for us, taking our punishment upon himself, and then resurrecting from the grave, proving that he truly is king. And as I was thinking about 
the story of Jesus and this passage in Ezekiel, something struck me that I'd never thought about before when it comes to the story of Jesus. It's that on the cross, Jesus' heart stopped beating so that ours could beat on forever. That Jesus' heart quit beating so that our hearts could live on forever. Jesus has taken the initiative for us to transform our hearts. And I think the Apostle Paul is worshiping, thinking about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if they're a follower of Jesus, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. The old heart is gone, and the new heart is here. God has taken the initiative to give us a new heart. And yet, and yet in the very next verse, we are told that some people can refuse this new heart. We're told in the very next verse, in verse 21, that yes, God is sovereign and he will accomplish his purposes. And yes, God is sovereign. He is constantly pursuing us. And yet some of us can refuse his offer to transform our heart. Look at verse 21 with me in Ezekiel chapter 11. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. So yes, God has taken the initiative to transform our hearts, but what verses 21 through 25 show us is that God offers us an invitation to transform our hearts. God is a gentleman and he is not going to force himself upon us. This is what some theologians call free will. God is sovereign and yet we still have a part to play in the process of transformation. And so that's why I love the analogy of a surgery and a surgeon when it comes to the Christian journey. How many of you in here by the raise of hands, how many of you have ever had a surgery in here? I bet there's more than that, but... We'll take it. Yeah, so most of us in here, we've, we've had surgery. Uh, I have had two surgeries. One surgery just got all my wisdom teeth taken out. They knocked me out, whatever. I don't really count that one. But when I was in eighth grade, going into ninth grade, I was pitching. I threw a baseball. My elbow broke off. My medial epicondyle right there, that little knob, completely broke off. And so they had to, uh, in surgery, screw it back in. And I have a, a nice little screw there sometime if you want to feel it. Uh, don't push too hard. It kind of hurts. And so I was out for five months. So when it comes to surgery, though, if I'm going to be honest, it was kind of scary, right? Because in that moment, you have to trust that the surgeon has diagnosed the problem correctly. And you have to trust that the surgeon, once they cut you open, that they're going to do everything correctly. And you have to trust that the, the pain and the recovery afterwards is going to be worth it in the long run, and it's going to heal you. You have to trust that the surgeon knows what they're doing. When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we have to trust that God is the perfect surgeon who knows exactly what he's doing. We have to trust that God has diagnosed the problem correctly, and he has. It's our sinful hearts that constantly pursue other things rather than him. And so God is constantly pursuing us, wooing us to himself, trying to get us to let him do surgery on our heart. But here's the kicker, just like with any surgery, we have to sign the consent form. We have to allow God to do that work. God has taken the initiative, but he's a gentleman, and he's going to offer 
a new heart to us, but we don't have to accept it. And so for some of you today, maybe you have never accepted him before. Maybe you've never signed the consent form and like, Bap- and like Jade, uh, taken the step into the waters of baptism. And if you've never taken that step before, but you feel the Holy Spirit pulling on your heart, I want to encourage you to just invite God into your life right here and right now. And I'd love to talk with you afterwards about what it means to follow Jesus. Come find me. But for many of us in this room, You've already taken that step. You've already signed the dotted line on the consent form and God has given you a new heart. You have a new heart living and beating inside of your chest. You have the Holy Spirit now living inside of you, helping you, guiding you, pruning you to live the life that God has called you to. It's an awesome life that you now have, a life with God forever. But nobody ever said it was going to be easy. In fact, it takes a long time for the body to get used to a new heart. And so when it comes to our Christian journey, there's this battle at play, this battle of our old heart versus our new heart. Paul talks about this a lot in the New Testament. He talks about the flesh versus the spirit, the flesh or the old heart that is Satan is trying to use us to get us to go back into the life that we once lived into our old sinful ways. And the spirit is trying to propel us into walking in goodness and truth and live a life like Jesus. We are in this battle until Jesus comes again. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. I want to read it to you. Colossians 3, 5 through 10, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, in your old heart. But now, because you've been given a new heart, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self, you no longer have an old heart, and have put on the new self. You have been given a new heart, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So Paul tells us here that since we've been given this new heart, we have to put to death the old ways of idolatry. It's necessary, but it's not always easy. Here's how the sermon comes back to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel's time, people were living idolatrous lives. They were literally putting up idols in the temple. And so God's presence was no longer going to be with them. They had abandoned God, and so God was going to abandon them. You and I, so often, the longer we follow Jesus, the longer we allow idols to start building back up in our lives. And here's why that's so crazy and dangerous. That's so crazy and dangerous because the New Testament tells us that the temple is no longer in Jerusalem. It's no longer a physical place. The temple is actually you and me. The temple is the place where God's presence dwells, where his glory dwells, and that's in you and that's in me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says this. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that 
temple. So what Paul is saying there is that you and I, we are God's temple. We are God's sanctuary. We are now the place that God dwells. And just like the people in Ezekiel's time who put up idols in the temple, you and I, if we're not careful, we start putting up idols in our temple, in our lives. And so I want to ask you the question, what idols are you devoted to? What idols am I devoted to? Because in verse 21, we are told that the people who refuse God's offer of transformation, their hearts are idolatrous. In verse 21, it tells us that their hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols. What are our hearts devoted to? What idols are in your life? There's a good book by Timothy Keller called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he really talks about how you can identify your idols and how to destroy them with the help of God's spirit. And in that book, Tim Keller says that an idol is, quote, anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. So what idol are you putting most of your resources towards? Where are you spending most of your time? What idols are you building up in God's temple? I've talked about this before, but but the idol that I keep coming back to over and over again is the idol of performance in my own life. But it's been coming out a little differently than the way I've seen it in the past. My idol of performance has come out in impatience because I keep finding myself recently being more impatient and more impatient, which kind of leads to some anger and frustration. And the reason that's the case is because I feel like I need to perform and, and you're just wasting my time over here. I have some better things to do. And so the root of this symptom of impatience is actually the, the idol of performance. And so what I've had to do is I've had to talk to Janelle, my wife, and talk to my best friend, James Bond, and just tell him, hey, I am wrestling with this idol of performance so that they know and they can hold me accountable. And then I've just been trying to pray this prayer over and over again throughout the day as much as I can remember. God of all patience, give me a patient heart. God of all patience, give me a patient heart because I know that I am the temple of God. And there's no place for idols in the temple of God. What about you? What idols are you building up in your life? What idols do you need the Holy Spirit to help clean out? Because if you do want his help, he's willing to help you, but you have to sign on the consent form. God takes the initiative to transform our heart, but he offers us the opportunity to transform our hearts. The chapter 11 of Ezekiel finishes in in some suspense, leaving us wondering, where is God's glory? Look at verse 22 with us. It says, Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Often the glory of God represents God's presence. The glory of the Lord, it went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. 
And so Ezekiel, the watchman, the prophet, he was given this vision and he tells it to the exiles. And at the end of the vision, he sees the glory of God leave Jerusalem, leave the temple and just go dwell over a mountain. And we're left wondering, where will God's glory end up? Will God's glory end up with God's people? Will God's glory end up inside of you and inside of me? Well, that depends on our response to him. Last week, Warren talked about how one of the best commentaries for the book of Ezekiel is the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And I think the best passage in Revelation to lay over our Ezekiel 11 chapter is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Because here, the risen Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, and he's speaking to you and me. And here's what he says in Revelation 3, verse 20. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. God is standing at the door of every single one of our lives and knocking waiting to see if we will welcome him in. Will you welcome him in today and experience a transformed life? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your Bible. And we thank you so much for the book of Ezekiel, which is a weird and wacky book, and yet it tells us so much about your glory and shows us so much about repentance. So I pray for every single one of us, Lord, that you would help us to think through, honestly, what idols do we have in our lives and surrender them to you, King Jesus, because we know that only through your power can they be wiped out. So help us, King Jesus, we pray, so that we can make more and better followers of you wherever we go. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.